Hi everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about studying law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. Today on the show we have Susanna Eames. Susanna attended the University of Cambridge where she was the treasurer of the Law Society, president of Downing College Bar, entertainment officer of the Downing Committee, production officer of the Downing Ball Committee and a legal volunteer for the Death Penalty Clinic. After graduating, Susanna completed the Bar Professional Training Course, otherwise known as the BPTC, and secured and completed a pupillage at One Hair Court, a leading family barrister chambers in London. Susanna cross-qualified to become a solicitor, where she is now an associate at Farrow & Co. She is a major game player in family law and chairs the Junior Lawyers Division and has a passion for supporting junior lawyers. So Susanna, thank you for uh, joining us today. No problem at all. So I'm just going to start by asking, um, what were the main reasons you decided to pursue a career in law? Ooh, what a wide question. Um, well, when I was younger, I always had quite a passion for fighting for the underdog. Um, I always had a real sense of justice. And when I was thinking about what career to, to or what degree to study, I thought that actually law would be a really good way of working out how I could sort of channel that passion and that sort of fight into a sort of productive career. So I thought I would study law um, and hopefully along the course of my degree, I'd be able to find out exactly, um, you know, which area I was interested in. So once you started studying law and during your degree, you maintained an active role in numerous activities and societies, which I've mentioned. Do you think that being active in groups and societies um, helps develop skills that are vital in a career in law? Oh, definitely. Because when you first start your degree, everybody focuses on the actual law and the the hard knowledge that you need to be a lawyer. And that's all, that's all very, very important. But... It's, I, I thought that it was absolutely vital to be involved in sort of activities and societies because that's how you develop the soft skills that are really quite important when you actually enter the profession. These are the sort of soft skills like um, being able to manage your time properly or being able to um, negotiate with um, suppliers. For, I mean, I'm thinking of specific roles in particular. But all of these soft skills are things that you don't learn in the degree course itself, but are absolutely vital to becoming a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Um, so I've recently become a member of the Law Society at my university mm-hmm. and um I have got quite an important role in there and it's taught me so much already because I have to kind of like delegate work to people yeah, um, yeah. as well as like keeping on top of my own work in mm. the society and juggle my um, my career as well as university work. Yeah. Um, it's taught me so much already. I think a lot of the time when you take up a role as well, you don't realise how much you don't know mm. until you start undertaking, until you start... Um, running a society or organizing events you don't realize how many little um little jobs there are um within these sort of the the sort of wider um so for example with event planning Mm. you don't realize that you have to contact various suppliers you have to keep a schedule you have to manage a budget these are all absolutely vital things that you need to be able to do when you become a solicitor or a barrister yeah but 
um, until you've actually taken up all these activities and um, activities um, more uh, on the side of your degree, you don't you don't realise how important they are. Yeah. So, how did you manage your studies and um, an active role in all of these activities? <laughs> I'm so <laughs> interested to know. <laughs> it was a steep learning curve. I'm going to put it that way. I tried to make sure that I didn't take on too many extracurricular activities. Yeah. I thought if I take on an activity, I want to make sure that I do it properly. I've never put I've never put all my activities together quite yeah. like you did at the beginning of this interview. <laughs> um, but I tried to make sure that I only did one or two big jobs per year. So, as you said, the sort of entertainment and I was on the um, downing committee in relation to entertainment so that was organizing events for my college um, and I also did production for the downing ball um, and those were the two things I did in my first year um, and I made sure that that was it because there's no point taking up um, you know hundreds of roles and then not being able to do any of them properly mm. um, and so once you've done a couple of roles you work out what sort of things you're suited to um, what sort of skills you what things you actually enjoy and you know then when you're looking for the next role you make sure that you get something that's actually suited to you and you develop those skills along the way yeah did you always have that kind of like way of thinking or is that something that Uh, I think that's probably developed yeah (laughs) I don't think I spoke about it this coherently while I was at university um I think when I first entered uni um, of course I wanted to take all these things up but I think part of me was a bit overwhelmed with going to university and when you when you first start there's so many opportunities available to you and if you're someone like me who does like to take up as much as possible I mean I remember going to the Freshers' Fair and signing up to absolutely everything yeah. <laughs> but I learned very very quickly that you just can't do that because everybody's got a limited amount of time you know you're obviously there to study a degree um, and you just cannot overwhelm yourself yeah this is why I think it's a good idea to do it in your first year and whilst you're at university so yeah, when yeah. you when you finish you mm. you kind of like you know what to do yeah hopefully. exactly because if you can learn these sort of skills while you're at university yeah. um, on these sort of smaller roles when you then actually enter the profession and you're dealing with things that are often on a bit far bigger scale you've had that experience already. exactly yeah you've yeah. already had that training so you are the chair of the junior lawyers division. What are your responsibilities with that role? So as chair of the junior lawyers division in Westminster and Holborn, I, I have quite a few responsibilities. Um, first of all, I run the sort of educational events, which we consider might be useful to junior lawyers in, the, in our area. So we'll put on, we recently did an applications clinic which was a drop-in session for people who were applying to train, you know, for training contracts and wanted to sort of review their applications with qualified solicitors in the area. But you had a great um, turnout for that. That sounds yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a good turnout. Yeah, we need to make sure we time it properly. Um, but it, basically our events are focused at helping lawyers in the area develop themselves professionally and socially. So that's an example of how we do that in relation to education. Um, but we also hold um, networking events that help um, solicitors essentially learn how to network and also create their own network with other junior lawyers at this level. Um, we also try and work on reform, which focuses on junior lawyers. So we're currently setting up a committee in relation to legal aid to try and get more criminal solicitors at the junior level um, engaged. 
and to really be able to feed back the issues uh, which are damaging the sort of junior end of the the criminals listers. Right. So it's it's a it's a wide reaching role. It's it's sort of education, social, and reform. Yeah. I'd say. Yeah. That's amazing. Such a such a big responsibility, kind of like bringing <laughs> up the the junior lawyers in the world. Um, so how can how can people get involved with that? How can they become? Um, if people want to get involved. Um, I'm I'm specifically the Westminster and Holborn area. Yeah, it's from LPC students to five years PQE. Um, if you're involved in that, we regularly hold social drinks. Um, our next one will be in April. So if you'd like to come along and meet some of us, uh, the details of that will be on either our LinkedIn page or our Twitter page. Um, we've also got a website which we'll have the details on. Um, if you're you know so if you're interested in finding out more about us, please do come in and meet us. So after graduating, you decided to become a barrister. So what attracted you to um, a career at the bar initially? <laughs> well, this links back to what I was saying at the beginning, that I'd always wanted to sort of fight for the underdog. And I thought that being a barrister would be the best way of doing that. I wanted to stand up in court and fight for my clients and argue their cases sort of ferociously. And so I applied to the, you know, I applied for pupillage, I applied for the VPTC. So during um, your studies, you did actually partake in a couple of mini pupillages. Um, what year do you think is best to kind of like start applying for them? Um, so that's a really interesting question because I don't think that there is a year which is sort of best to apply for mini pupillages. I think as soon as you decide that you're interested in a career at the bar, yeah. you should look to apply for mini pupillages. Yeah. There's no, there's no start date, and also there's no date at which, um, you know, it's too late either. People um, join the bar at, at any age, so the minute that you think that this might be the career for you, mm-hmm. you should apply for a mini pupillage because. There's nothing quite like following a barrister around to see what the job is actually yeah. like. Yeah. I've spoken to a couple of people about this because I'm quite interested in having a career at the bar. And um, I'm in my first year at university and I'm very eager and I want to start doing my mini pupillages <laughs> right now. Um, <laughs> I've heard people say that, yeah, do them in your first year because you're Mm -hmm. less busy at uni, you don't have so much pressure. Mm -hmm. People have also told me, do them in your final year because you've got that little bit more knowledge of the legal system. Um, So, so yeah, I think that just go with it wherever you feel right. I think it's good to have a general understanding of, like, how the court system works, maybe, so you can Mm -hmm. get the most out of it. But I think that when I did them when I was at uni, yeah, I found very interesting to see. I think at whatever stage you do a mini pupillage, you'll get something different out of it. So if you do a mini pupillage at the start of your law degree, um, you'll probably be learning about the sort of basics of the court system, Mm -hmm. but you'll have, because you have less of a base of knowledge, um, the things that you take away are likely to be different Mm -hmm. than if you did it once you'd finished your law degree. But that's absolutely fine. As long as when you're applying for pupillage, you can say, I did this mini pupillage in, for example, my first year. Mm-hmm. This is what I learned from it. And this is why I want to become a barrister as a result of it. That's what really matters. So um, it, it's going to be personal for each person. For example, you said if you don't have, if you think you don't have time in your third year, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's a personal choice. Yeah. And I think it's for each person to make that decision. What would be most useful for me? Um, I'm a fan of not waiting. Yeah. I think if, if you think that you're interested, do it immediately because it might not be for you. Yeah. And you don't want to wait a couple of years thinking that 
it's just not the right time to do a mini pupillage yeah. and then get two years down the line and think, oh, actually, this isn't for me. Yeah, yeah, sure. because then you might be graduating and mm-hmm. you could have spent mm-hmm. that time doing work experience in a solicitor's office. Exactly. And, and getting your experience in other, in other areas rather than thinking, oh, I want to be a barrister. Yeah, you know, and yeah. realising after you graduated that that's actually not for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it also gives you the time as well to explore different practice areas. So mm-hmm. one year you can maybe do family and then the next year, I don't know, like commercial. And something to emphasise as well is that a lot of people when applying for pupillage do have about six mini pupillages, I'd say four mm. to six. So um, they will take time to build up and they're often over, yeah. say, three years. So um, even if you just did, for example, one in your first year to get a rough idea probably a good idea just out of interest how many just for the listeners who are thinking like how many mini pupillages are like the ideal number to have for <laughs> your pupillage is there a magic number is one not enough is 10 too many so i think you do want to have a bit of a range of mini pupillages because when you enter a pupillage interview people are going to ask you um why this area of law, why this area of the country. And if you've done a range of mini pupillages, you could say, for example, oh, I've done this mini pupillage in a different area and I didn't enjoy it, or I've done it in a different area of the country and it wasn't for me. So it helps justify your decisions. I was always of the view that sort of four to six was a good number. It was enough that you'd sort of shown that you've researched the area that you're going into properly, enough to show that you've made decisions on the basis of informed information. I think it also depends on which mini pupillages you've done. Because, for example, if you've done five crime ones, you decide, oh, actually, criminal's not for me. Mm-hmm. And then you apply yeah. to a family set, you're going to have to do some more family mini pupillages. Yeah. And just another question what's the difference between like an assessed mini pupillage and a non assessed mm-hmm. mini pupillage? And do you think there's any benefit in, in doing an assessed one? Um, so, an assessed mini pupillage. It's a bit more structured, so it means that the chambers will actually give you some sort of assessment during the course of it, whereas um, with a non-assessed mini-pupillage, you will literally just be following the barrister around for a couple of days, and there won't be any sort of formal assessment. That doesn't mean that they haven't kept notes on you, that doesn't mean that they haven't kept a sort of record of your mini-pupillage, but it just means they're not actually making you sit down and do, for example, an essay or you know, an interview or anything like that. Um, in terms of which ones you should do, well, it will depend on the area of law you want to go into. Because if, for example, you want to go into criminal sets yeah. and no criminal sets offer assessed mini pupillages, um, well, then you're obviously not going to do any. Yeah. Um, so I think instead of thinking, should I be doing assessed mini pupillages or non assessed ones, you think, which sets do I want to go to? And then you do your mini pupillages on that basis. Mm-hmm. And if it's assessed, that makes sense. it's assessed. So after you completed your pupillage, you decided to retrain as a solicitor. Why did you decide to do this? And, and why family law? <laughs> oh, well, they're two very different questions. Um, why did I decide to retrain as a solicitor? Well, I completed my pupillage and realised that all the things which had drawn me to that part, to that profession, were just as applicable to being a solicitor. So, for example, I talked about fighting for my clients. I talked about um, helping the underdog and all these sorts of things. And you can do them just as much as a solicitor. It's, it's not quite as glamorous as standing up in court and giving speeches, but it's just as important. And I sort of took a step back and thought, 
which profession are my skills best suited to? I didn't love court in the way that many barristers do. I found it quite draining. I found the hours quite long and I didn't get the same rush from court that many barristers do. And for me, I thought that actually all the parts of the job that I enjoyed, for example, the client contact and actually that sort of initial meeting with the client were actually all those all those things I enjoyed were much more suited to being a solicitor so after quite a bit of soul searching (laughs) um, I decided to retrain I'd always known I wanted to do family law yeah Um, that was something I kind of learned during my degree it's for me it's that people contact that was something that was really really important to me and um, I've always been the type of person that's listened to my family's problems you know helped Um, on a sort of personal level with my friends and my family and I thought actually this is something I'm really good at this is something I really love doing let's do it professionally (laughs) so which area of family law do you specialize in um so I primarily do um financial remedy cases so I do sort of divorce sorting out the finances after a divorce um, and then sort of private children work as well Um, normally connected to a divorce Um, and I do it with sort of uh, high net worth people generally Mm -hmm. so when there's quite complicated assets that's the kind of thing I really like to get into yeah does that area of um, well does that practice area kind of have much emotional connection with because I know that some areas must have like a real like emotional tie with I think that's why I'm quite attracted to um, if we're in family law like get quite invested yeah yeah But I think that would make me work harder for it. Um, But do you kind of have that in the financial... I guess you do. Yes, yes, completely. So my job starts when a client comes into my office and says, I'm thinking about getting divorced. And that's the sort of very first stage. Mm. So um, something that I think is quite important as part of my practice is that we don't immediately jump to getting divorced. We say, have you tried counselling? You know, we'll often give people the names of counsellors and try and help them get through that initial emotional stage before we actually launch into, okay, this is the end, um, and then start thinking about the divorce and the finances. Um, I would say that, quite frankly, half of my job is sort of helping a client through the emotional challenges of getting divorced. And yes, there is quite, it is quite an emotional job. You are dealing with the most personal, or dealing with one of the most difficult and personal aspects of somebody's life. Um, And a lot of the times you do have to understand that dynamic to be able to help them through it. How do you actually keep a professional distance? Well, you have to remember that your job is a lawyer. You know, you're not a counsellor. We're not, we're not trained as counsellors. We're not trained as therapists. We are here to be lawyers. There's quite a lot of important things we do to maintain that boundary, such as maintaining boundaries when you speak to clients and making sure that you are very clear about when you can help and when you can't help. Right. Whenever a client comes in, I will recommend counsellors I will recommend therapists I think it's very important that through the process people are getting the help that they need and they get it from an appropriate professional who is trained in that way Mm. so a lot of the time my job is just signposting when it gets a bit too close to the line um, and I make sure that it goes to a different professional who knows how to manage those emotions yeah and so that makes sure that we keep that sort of boundary so so you mentioned um that you chose to do family law because you know you were suited to it it was Mm -hmm. it was Mm -hmm. you what traits and personality do you think 
asked you to do a, a career in family law like mm, mm. who is who is the perfect candidate for this um, so I'd say it depends what part of family law you want to go into. Um, but some traits that sort of run across all family lawyers is that you've got to be interested in people. That is one of the most fundamental things. Um, when somebody comes in to see you, you need to be genuinely interested in listening to what they have to say and also in helping them get through this. So it's those it's those softer skills that I think really separate a family lawyer from a different type of lawyer. Right. You need to be able to keep those boundaries. You need to be resilient because, as you said, it is an emotionally difficult job. And if you're somebody who finds yourself quite weighed down by other people's problems, it's not the role for you. Um, You need to be able to work, how do I put it, erratic hours. Right. Because it's it's not, for example, if you're a property solicitor, you yeah. know your timescale far in advance. Mm. You know when properties are going to complete. Mm. Um, but with family law, it, it can be... Tell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anything could come yeah, up. Yeah, every case is different. Exactly. So you did mention that you do a lot of divorce work. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the um, no-fault divorce law will impact divorce law's practice? Um, it's, that's a really, it's a really interesting question. Um, because, as the listeners may or may not know, yeah. no-fault no divorce is widely praised mm. by most family lawyers. And when I say most, I say like 99% of the profession yeah. all agree that it's a good idea. Yeah. The reason it's a good idea is because at the moment, when people are getting divorced, unless they've been separated for two or five years, depending yeah. on the grounds, one party will have to accuse the other one of unreasonable behaviour. Now, in most cases, you're able to agree what those unreasonable behaviour particulars will be. But in agreeing that one party has to blame the other, you set the entire proceedings off on the basis that one party is blaming the other. And it's a really uncomfortable way to begin proceedings that often inflames tensions and actually worsens the relationships between the parties unnecessarily. Mm. Because often two people agree that they want to get divorced and there's just no need to delve into who's blaming who. And it doesn't actually add anything. Yeah. So while at the moment it is easy to do that, you know, in, in the majority of cases you can agree that, it leaves behind this nasty undertone, which um, the no-fault process is going to remove. Um, I, I think it's an absolutely incredible change when we get there. Um, practically, it won't make that much of a difference. But emotionally to clients, um, it's going to mean an awful lot. Yeah. Does that have any impact on the financial, uh, what happens with finances? If, if, if one party is technically to blame, I say, in, you know, uh, obviously one person might not actually be actually at fault, but you have to pin the blame on someone, does that then have a knock-on impact on how finances are split? So the divorce proceedings do not, in the vast, vast majority of cases, impact on the finances. It doesn't matter who's the petitioner. Um, It doesn't matter the detail of those unreasonable behaviour particulars. Again, in in the vast majority of cases. And it's often just an unnecessary contentious issue. It really doesn't matter who's the petitioner. Those, the detail of those um, of that petition does not impact the finances most know. of the time. <laughs> most of the time. So you can tell I'm a lawyer having yeah. to just <laughs> put that caveat in there. <laughs> so what's the most rewarding part of your profession? The most rewarding part of the job... It's when I've been with a client from the start to the end. It's when I've had a client who's come in, 
They've had a really difficult situation. They've clearly um, been really struggling with it. And we get them to the end of the divorce process. And the finances get sorted, the divorce gets sorted, and they're able to move on with their life. There's nothing quite like seeing someone having that sort of weight lifted from them. And you can sort of send them on their way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, as you said, they come in at the most difficult point of their life to see them off feeling hopefully mm-hmm. happy and exactly. about to start a new yeah. um, a new stage of their life. You know you've done a good job yeah. when they leave able to move on. Something that I think that most people do before they you know start their career is find out how much that profession gets paid. I don't think it's a secret that solicitors and barristers get paid at like a decent amount, mm-hmm. but obviously practice areas get do get paid different amounts and commercial and chancery is known to be at the top end. Where do you think family is in that scale? So family lawyers, it's quite a wide ranging spectrum. You have lawyers who are just doing um, legal aid and then you have family lawyers who are just doing privately paid work. I think the range for a newly qualified solicitor in family law is probably from about 25,000 if you're doing care work, perhaps out of London, um, up to it can probably get to sort of 60 to 65,000 if you're in a sort of privately paid firm in central London. Mm. I think that's the sort of range for newly qualified. Um, but most family lawyers, somewhere in the middle of that range, I'd say. Yeah. The rumours that I've heard aren't true, really, basically. <laughs> Many people who go into family law, you don't go into it to be the sort of incredibly paid lawyer who works, you know, 24 hours a day yeah. and earns sort of ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah. I think there is there is a middle ground. Many people who do family law get paid, you know, get paid well. Yeah. Um, and I think that the myth that family lawyers... Um, you know, are paid absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's not it's not correct. Yeah. If you if you want to be a family lawyer and you're concerned about money, um, there are plenty of jobs out there where you can be paid paid well. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, I think it's very important to kind of like stamp out that rumor because I would hate for people to be discouraged from family yeah. law just because they think that you know they might not get paid very much. Exactly. Not that people, I'm sure, <laughs> want to get in there just for the money because I'm sure that's not true. Yeah, um, it's I mean, good to know though what to expect. <laughs> I think if it's if you're doing just legal aid work mm. that you'll be paid less, but a lot of firms do mix legal aid and private work um, to make sure that their you know that their employees are paid decently. Yeah, yeah, it's good to know. Yeah, I was surprised when I heard that from a QC actually, a family barrister QC um he said that he did most mostly uh, legal aid work and I was like how is that possible well but family is. yeah family legal aid is paid better than criminal legal aid um and so actually there's a distinction that needs to be made there when people yeah. talk about the low um fees for legal aid um because it's really the criminal bar I mean family legal aid is low don't get me wrong yeah but the criminal legal aid fees are so low (laughs) that that's where the problem really needs to be addressed first or that's my view at least so do you think it's important for family lawyers to keep their commercial awareness up as much as say commercial lawyers Um, I'd say it's a different type of commercial awareness because commercial lawyers obviously need to know what's going on in sort of the wider business world family lawyers it's it's a different kind of knowledge that you need to have Um, and this I'm speaking as sort of for, with my sort of financial remedies yeah. hat on here because the, the knowledge that you need to have is of people's assets and you need to understand how those assets are structured you need to understand you need you need to be able to interpret a client's asset base 
So in terms of the wider, com- wider sort of commercial world, you don't you don't need to be following that quite as much as commercial lawyers do. Um, but you do need to make sure that, for example, you know what changes are happening in the tax world. Mm-hmm. Because if, for example, there's a change to tax on um, people's own homes, you need to be aware of that because when you split assets, that will be relevant. Mm-hmm. Or, for example, if you, ne- you need to know if there are going to be changes to pension legislation because that might change how much income people have when they retire, yeah. which is going to be a relevant factor. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, a, it's a different type of commercial awareness, but yes, it is just as important. That is interesting. Do you ha- ever have cases where you have to like find hidden assets that are like, in the Cayman <laughs> Islands? I do, yeah. Um, I quite well, like I them, so actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoy those types of cases yeah, there. I imagine that sounds really interesting. Um, as part of the sort of the financial disclosure process, clients yeah. will give you their bank statements. Nice. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> most of the time, you know, it's you know, it's it's not proportionate to go through yeah. them. But it's quite a nice sort of challenge to go through bank statements and try and find where yeah. money has gone. It's quite That's interesting, yeah, really especially if you're very nosy. <laughs> uh, so, what are your favourite ways to keep up with the current affairs? <laughs> You're asking me this just after the election. So <laughs> I have been listening to a lot of podcasts recently. Um, I've really got engaged with that. Podcast is great. <laughs> yeah, I say that. <laughs> well, it's just a really nice thing because you can download them before you get on the tube. Yeah. Um, it really makes that sort of journey into out of work, in and out of work. Um, a lot more productive and I can feel myself as a lawyer saying that Mm. (laughs) so I'm a big fan of podcasts I'm a big fan of also actually talking about current affairs with your friends Um, a lot of the time just um, sort of engaging with your friends on these sort of topics means that you engage with these issues in a way that you might not just from reading them Um, so I have a whatsapp chat with all my sort of (laughs) I say this now all my like nerdy bar friends (laughs) and whenever a new development in the law or current affairs comes out you know somebody will post it in the group and we'll have a bit of an argument about it Um, but that's a (laughs) well that's the thing you actually think about it um, and you talk about it in a way that is relevant to you um, and I think that's the, one of the best ways to keep up with affairs, really. Yeah, I think that would be really good for students. So I think if I was at uni, I'd want to um, create a WhatsApp group and just like talk about <laughs> just make it, um, yeah, just engage with it a bit more rather than reading on yeah. the front page of the Financial Times and you're just like, oh, you know. Exactly, it's taking it, yeah. it's taking it that one step further because when you read things, a lot of the time you don't actually take them in. Yeah, you're not processing it so much. Exactly, yeah. but when you actually talk about them, you engage with them, mm. um, you connect with them in a way in a way that's much more permanent and that you'll actually remember. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the same for me kind of like when I'm going through problem questions or mm. something like that. When I'm discussing it, it's kind of like drawing the information out of me yeah, and exactly. it's, it's, it sticks then, I think. So, mm. yeah, I do think that talking through things is a, is a much better way of remembering things. Yeah, completely agree. Reading things over and over again. <laughs> Okay, um, well, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us here today. No problem at all. (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me. (laughs) For more student lawyer information, commercial awareness quizzes and interviews, head over to thestudentlawyer.com. If you're a student lawyer who is interested in becoming part of the team, email us at hello at studentlawyer.com.